Where have all the female premiers gone? This is the big question. This victory belongs to all of us, every single one of us. And I am so proud to be standing in front of you as the first woman to ever have been elected as the premier. British Columbia has never been stronger and our future has never been brighter. The change has finally come to Alberta. When women gained the right to vote in Canada, they were also eligible to run for office and even become premier. The first woman appointed to a cabinet position was Mary Ellen Smith in 1921 in British Columbia. Seventy years later, British Columbia would also give Canada its first female premier with the election of Rita Johnson in 1991. At one point in 2013, Canada had six women premiers, with four of them in charge of Canada's most populous provinces. Now it's 2019, and the most recent female premier, Rachel Notley, was defeated in a general election in Alberta. In this episode of The Big Question, we're talking to Melanie Thomas. So my main fields are gender and politics, so I specifically study women in Canada, uh, gender and how it structures political behavior, how people vote, how they think and feel about politics, and political careers. An associate professor of political science at the University of Calgary about why there are so few female leaders in Canadian politics. Okay, so we have zero women in the Premier's office as of 2019. What's striking about this is that for every single woman who served as premier, and for Kim Campbell as the only woman who served as prime minister, you can look at them as um, idiosyncratic events or individual governments and say, I know exactly why they weren't reelected. I know exactly why that government failed. And yet when you look at them together, you really can't deny the pattern that women coming into the premier's office and women coming out of the premier's office looks fundamentally different than when men do it. And so as for me as a gender and politics scholar, while I am perfectly prepared to acknowledge that Every government has its problems and that you can come up with a perfectly reasonable explanation for every single one of those governments not being reelected. I also think that we can't deny that that gendered pattern means something and we really should look at what's going on with those women that affects them in ways that doesn't affect the men. Let's look at some examples. We have our neighbors to the West, British Columbia. In 2011, the B.C. Liberals elected Christy Clark as their leader and effectively as premier upon the retirement of Gordon Campbell. She won the 2013 provincial election, but something happened around the 2017 general election. Can you tell us more about Christy Clark? When you look at the context around when Gordon Campbell resigned, there were people in his office who, he didn't go to jail for things, but there were people in his office who did, which is, if you look historically at BC politics, this wonderful quirk that happens in BC and doesn't seem to happen elsewhere, where people in the premier's office go to jail for things. Um Leaving that aside, though, so Gordon Campbell, long-serving premier of British Columbia, leader of the B.C. Liberals, decides to step down. There's a quite heavily contested leadership contest. Christy Clark had served in government as a cabinet minister for the B.C. Liberals, had decided to leave uh, government and go back to, you know, the private sector talk radio, which is where she's from. I think in part because her opportunities for advancement, she had correctly identified that she wasn't necessarily going to be brought easily into the premier's office um, while still being in government. This stuff hits the fan. Uh, 
a bunch of men come forward as leadership candidates. Christy Clark enters the leadership race late, rides up the middle, easily wins that leadership contest, and then proceeds to do a really smart job of building caucus support uh, so that she builds the support on the for her party around her, uh, wins the 2013 election, governs, seems to govern quite well. I, I mean that in terms of how the media talk about her and her government. We have some media analysis about her first year in government, and the, they talk about her in glowing terms in terms of her competence. They think that she's like her, her numbers are really, really positive. And so if you look at Christy Clark, she's one of these women who has a really glowing kind of like narrative around her as she's doing her first couple of years as premier. Fast forward to 2017. And I mean, you can say long serving government. Christy Clark ends up leading her government to the most seats. Constitutional Convention says that if you, the previous government, the incumbents, get the first chance to try to f govern, normally when we change governments, this isn't an issue because if you lose a majority of seats, you just say, I'm never going to get the confidence of the House. And so most governments, people, incumbents who lose, don't try. Christy Clark tries to get the confidence of the House, fails, and that's when she has to resign as, as Premier. People might want to cast backwards and say, oh, the party was in trouble when they selected her. And I have uh, a research project where I looked at this and Christy Clark is one of these examples of a woman who comes in to lead a party that's not in trouble. They had a lot of money coming in in terms of donations. Uh, they hadn't lost seats in the previous elections. They were doing OK in terms of by-election victories and things like they were, they were OK in the polls. Like they weren't amazing, but they weren't like looking like they were going to lose the next election by the time she was selected. And so... One of the things I really want to push people on is to avoid this kind of like post hoc revisionism by saying, oh, well, these women, they lost pretty quickly or they lost at some point, which means that they must not have been in good shape or their parties or their governments must not have been in good shape when they first came in, because it's hard to find evidence systematically to support that. Christy Clark is one of these one of the cases where we don't have good evidence to say that her party was in trouble or her government was in trouble when she was first selected as premier. In 2013, Premier Dalton McGuinty retires as the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party after a not-so-strong showing at the 2011 provincial election. After Dalton McGuinty came Kathleen Wynne. What was the mood when Kathleen Wynne became leader of the Liberal Party in 2013? If we compare Kathleen Wynne to Christy Clark in the context where they come in, both of them are competing in heavily contested leadership contests for parties that have been in government for a long time. The difference, though, is that where the BC Liberals are flush with money, the Ontario Liberals have a pretty steep decline in donations. Where the BC Liberals had done okay in the previous election, the Ontario Liberals had lost a lot of seats the previous election. Where the BC Liberals were okay in the polls, the Ontario Liberals, if an election was held the day that Kathleen Wynne was selected as leader, they would have lost, and they would have lost pretty big. Uh, and so when you're looking at the polls, when you're looking at the money, when you're looking at the past seats and like by-election victories and all these other sorts of things, the Ontario Liberals, are they're showing weakness across the board. And so that, to me, is the kind of evidence that I would need to see to say that this is a party in decline. And so when we say that that matters, when especially when you're looking at when a party chooses to select a woman, this is the idea that uh, the typical players wouldn't necessarily want to lead a party or to seek power when it didn't look like such a super great, awesome, plum position. And so the argument in the academic literature is that once there is a 
context of decline or there's a context of crisis. Something is happening that would take the men that would normally contest these leadership positions out of the running. Either they're voluntarily selecting out because they're like, eh, this looks like a poison chalice. I don't think I want it. Or they've literally been taken out by scandal. Uh, And so that means that the path is open for women in ways that it otherwise wouldn't be. Kathleen Wynne is, I think, the only woman. Kathleen Wynne, and if you cast back to, say, Kim Campbell, or Rita Johnston, say, back in 1991, the first woman who served as a a premier uh, in Canada, this is the narrative that fits them, where... Like, the context is not awesome. The context is really quite difficult. Uh, Theresa May for Brexit as well. Like, this is, you can see there's a whole bunch of women where you you look at the context and it's like, this looks like the party is not in good shape. Uh, And so the argument is that women come into these positions because the men that they would normally compete against um, have decided that they're not going to participate. Now, I don't know if that's actually the case necessarily for Kathleen Wynne. Like I say, it was a heavily contested leadership contest. But I will say she's notable amongst the women who have served recently as premiers in Canada. Canada because her party was in a good decline across a bunch of indicators when she was first selected its leader. We just talked about parties in decline and parties in crisis, but let's shift to a province where a party definitely is not in crisis, Alberta. Alison Redford was named leader of the Alberta PCs, and they've been ruling at that time for about 40 years or so. Tell us more about Alison Redford's situation. So Alberta is the case that makes it really hard for a Canadian studying longevity in government or wanting to present longevity in government as an argument for decline, where it's just like Alberta is the case that says you you can't precisely because we have, since we joined Confederation, these long periods of one-party dominance. Um, And so when we get into when Alison Redford is coming into selection, 2011, and then into the 2012 election, some people might say, well, the government's long in the tooth, and that suggests crisis, or there's some kind of dissatisfaction. And there are certainly things that you can look at in Alberta that show like a degree of democratic malaise, uh, super low voter turnout being one of them. But if you're looking at the same indicators that I used to look at the other premiers, like the The PCs gained seats in the 2008 election. So if you're looking at the past election results, they look like they're strong. Support is really strong and stable. So if an election was held the day that Redford was selected leader, they arguably would have won a majority government. Their donations were stable as well. They were winning by-elections when those came up. And so by all of those indicators that we're looking at, the stuff that said that Kathleen Wynne was leading a party that was in trouble... If you look at it for Alison Redford, her party looks like it's okay. Where we get some disagreement about this is what happens with a party split. And this is where the wild rose comes in. And I have to admit, I've got some disagreement with a few colleagues about how best to interpret this, because the wild rose had been around since the early 2000s. Um, Paul Hinman was its first leader. I'm from Granham, Alberta. I don't know if anybody's listening from down there in the middle of nowhere in farming southern Alberta. But Paul Hinman is from around Cardston, um, Cardston Tabor Warner, that particular district. So deep, deep south. And so they had been, uh, he had won in a by-election in Calgary Glenmore, I want to say, or somewhere in Calgary. But that his home district was rural and kind of in my patch. So they've been around for a while, kind of never had a breakthrough. And what precipitated their breakthrough was that Daniel Smith was selected as leader. And Daniel Smith is a good political operator, whether or not you agree with her or not. And she was able to massively increase the amount of donations 
specifically that the Wild Rose is getting. So the Wild Rose starts to get a lot of money. They start to get a lot of hype. They start to present themselves like a credible threat. And then you start to see PCs crossing the floor over to the Wild Rose. And so this is what my colleague identifies as a party schism. So you've got the party in government, you have people leaving government going over to an opposition party. And this is the idea that um, there's something wrong in the party that's leading it to fracture in this kind of way. Fast forward to the 2019 provincial election in Alberta. How much of this affected Rachel Notley's re-election chances versus Jason Kenney's election chances? I see a lot of gender in that campaign and how it looked on, on a lot of sides. The caveat I want to put on this or the overarching comment is that, again, there were mistakes that the Alberta NDP campaign made. If you look at Rachel Notley, she was classic, prototypical woman selected to lead a political party. She was selected to lead the Alberta NDP in the fall of October 2014, uh, when it was small, left-leaning, electorally uncompetitive. This is the classic context in which a woman is selected to lead a political party. The more electorally competitive are, the less likely they are to select a woman. So fast forward to 2015, price of oil starts to tank in 2014, which means that in 2015, we see that... Um, how we pay for health and education in Alberta is under threat. Albertans prioritize health and education in that 2015 election campaign, in part because the government of the day under Jim Prentice is saying we need to make cuts in order for us to actually like not uh, run massive deficits, even though they were still planning on running massive deficits. And where Rachel Notley comes in is effectively saying the we will protect healthcare and education um, through this downturn. Now, on the political science side of things, when the economy is bad, incumbents get punished. It doesn't matter who the incumbent is. It's just whoever is in government wears that the economy is going bad. And where voters look at this as the anticipated change in the future economy. So there's some good work from the states that says that coming out of the 2008 crisis, the economy is technically getting worse. But the narrative is that the economy is going to get better and Barack Obama benefits from this. Alberta in 2015, the narrative was it's just going to get really bad. And so the PCs wore that. So economic voting is a huge part of this. Fast forward to 2019, where healthcare and education had been protected, but in ways that, you know, didn't mean like they weren't necessarily improved because we didn't exactly have the money to do the improving parts. We've run deficits. Albertans don't like deficits so much. Um, we dislike taxes more. Uh, and what you have is an economy where the bottom has fallen out of oil and gas and the recovery has come in a way where certain types of oil and gas jobs haven't come back. And these disproportionately affect younger men without post-secondary credentials effectively. And so there's a certain type of oil and gas job that's just not coming back. Um, Rachel Notley, as the leader of the government, is wearing this. So economic voting plays into 2019 as well. And this also allows Jason Kenney to say things like, I'll be obsessed with creating jobs. I can't imagine I mean, I struggled to imagine a context in which a politician would use the word obsessed ever in an election campaign, but that it came up in that context. The obsessed with job creation, using the pickup truck, a lot of that whole narrative, it felt very masculine, but also very typical, like a, a typical kind of masculinism, like looking at a certain kind of oil patch job kind of masculinity. That is only open to a certain kind of leader, like only men, I think, can really perform that kind of masculinity particularly well. And the interesting thing about that was that we had focus groups and things looking at the 2019 election where people would say, well, I like what, how Rachel Notley did some things. I liked how she managed certain elements of the economy, but I'm still not going to vote for her because um, the economy. 
the economy is stereotyped as masculine. It's an issue that conservative parties own. There's a lot of things that are going on with that. But one of the things I found really striking is that people consistently said that they liked Rachel Notley, but they still wouldn't necessarily vote for her party. People would consistently say they didn't like Jason Kenney that much, but they would still vote for his party. And so leader evaluations like that matter a lot for vote choice. We don't have a good handle about how gender plays into that, in part because we've just had too few women to lead parties in that context for us to actually be able to assess what their gender has done. It's not going to be consistent, right? Like the way that gender works for Christy Clark is going to be in in the context in British Columbia different than, say, for Kathleen Wynne in Ontario than it is for Rachel Notley or Alison Redford in Alberta. But the trend or the consistent thing, the work that gender is doing, you do need to have more women in that position to study to be able to see what exactly their gender is doing consistently because they're all different actors, right? And you need to be able to take into account the fact that they're different actors to see the commonalities with the gender stuff. But what I think it is, is that for people to say, well, I like this woman and I think she's competent, but I'm not going to vote for her, reminds me of a lot of this other stuff that's coming out of research in terms of hiring practices where women and men can have the exact same credentials and men will get a bonus for presumed leadership potential where women don't. And so one of the things that comes through that is that for women and men to be seen as equally credible for some jobs, women actually have to have a considerably better record than men because they're not getting that kind of potential bonus that men are getting. Like there's a whole boatload of research on this when and what they're doing is they're sending out the exact same CV and they're just changing the name. At the end of the day, what impact does this have on our lives in terms of the legislative agenda with a male premier versus a female premier, or in terms of women seeing diversity in their representation? This is a question that's preoccupied political science and people who study gender and politics and, and diversity and representation in politics for quite some time. I'll be the first to say that I don't expect women or anybody else who's been either historically excluded or historically underrepresented or currently underrepresented, I don't expect them to be magical unicorns to like fix something just because they get into politics. But there is something to see about whether or not the kinds of policies that they pursue and the kinds of things that they talk about, if that actually changes, depending on who's actually in government. There's a new book that's coming out that's looking at um, provincial and territorial leaders in Canada. One of the things that's come through very clearly is that not all women who, when they come into the premier's office, office automatically start acting for women. And there are good reasons why we don't see that. Our systems are pretty constrained. People are representatives of their parties. Party determines a lot more about a government's legislation agenda than, say, the sociodemographics of the premier or the leader or things like this. But the other thing that also comes through very clearly is that when you want to forward a certain kind of legislative agenda, being in one of these positions really does matter. And this is where Rachel Notley becomes the other interesting case. So unlike, say, Kathleen Wynne, I mean, Kathleen Wynne did things like unabashedly said, we're going to fund junior and senior kindergarten for everybody. And this is effectively public child care, but we're going to do it through education. So it's going to be harder to cut. Like that's an unabashedly feminist policy. Where Rachel Notley did this was that if you look even back to her election first as an MLA in 2008, she just talked about women more. You can go back to Alberta Hansard and prior to the 2008 election, that first session after that first 2008 election, um, women and gender just aren't mentioned. If you hear it, you get like men and women in uniform or ladies and gentlemen and stuff like this, but you don't actually get substantive discussion of gender or women or this stuff in policy at all in the provincial legislature. 2008, it changes because of Rachel Notley and because of other MLAs like Laurie Blakeman elected by the Liberals. But so you can see they actually just start talking about these issues. Because Notley talked about these issues, even as an MLA, 
when she becomes head of government, she's actually able to put this into practice. And so gender-based analysis becomes mandatory up to and including uh, presentations to the premier's office. And so she would expect civil servants to be able to answer questions related to gender and diversity about every single policy domain from the floor on the fly if they were asked. And so it meant that the way that we did policy in Alberta changed because there was an expectation that people would know about gendered impacts or race-based impacts or things like this. They brought in legislation protecting gender identity. We have the creation of the Status of Women Ministry, where in the past Alberta has had a pretty hostile relationship when it comes to bodies that wanted to protect the interests of women. So even advisory councils for the status of women and things like this in the early 90s, this was, yeah, super contentious and um, did not have a friendly relationship with the provincial government at all, where Notley's actually creating these kind of government agencies. Now, the criticism would be these are not very well-funded government ministries. And so the argument is, well, what what impact could they make? And one of the things I would note is that as Premier, Jason Kenney hasn't cut that ministry, and so maybe having it on a shoestring wasn't so strategically unwise. I don't know. What this ultimately comes down to is that I think people need to stop thinking about diversity only in terms of critical mass. Like, this isn't just about getting to, like, the magic 30% or, like, just having enough bodies in a legislature that look a certain kind of way. That does matter. That does matter in terms of actually sparking interest in politics for people who have been historically excluded or are currently underrepresented. I don't want to diminish that. But when it comes to actual policy, you need people who are prepared to act on diversity in key positions so they have power and they're prepared to use it. So it's shifting from critical mass to critical actors. And I would say somebody like Rachel Notley was a critical actor. This also makes space for people who are, you know, not women or not people of color or not Indigenous to actually critically act on those policy areas as well. And so that means that you don't rely on people who have been um, historically marginalized or are currently underrepresented to be the only ones that are doing the heavy lifting on this stuff, right? And so Critical actors for women can be women, but they can also be men. Critical actors for people of color can be people of color, but they also can be white folks, right? Like a lot of it is thinking about how are you using the position of power? Why aren't parties selecting women leaders? This is where the whole crisis and decline narrative really comes in, because when we looked at this internationally, um, one of the things that became very clear is that women either were in positions of leadership of countries, say, uh, if they had a strong family connection to a previous leader, so a husband, a father, something along those lines, or there was a crisis that took out all of the competitive men. This is Angela Merkel to a T. There was a major crisis in her party and in the subnational like partner party. Uh, and so a bunch of people went to jail, like all the people who would have competed for the leadership um, against her went to jail. She was not affected negatively by the crisis. And so they basically the field clears and poof, Angela Merkel. And that's that's how we get Angela Merkel. There's a crisis. Um, decline is uh, somebody like Margaret Thatcher, where her party loses two elections in a 12 month period. Um, so they're not like things aren't great for them, but they're not super bad. What Margaret Thatcher does is she actually creates leadership space. So she knocks off. She does a challenge to the existing party leader. He resigns. He doesn't survive the challenge. And only then do the other men scramble and be kind of like, oh, oh, the leadership position is now free. And so they like Maggie's made the way. And so they tried to compete and take the leadership process away from her. What this tells us is that when times are good and when parties think that they're going to win, the field is crowded with with men. As mentioned at the beginning of the episode, it's 2019 and there are no female premiers. 
How long do you think it'll be before Canada sees another female premier? If you look at the federal level is instructive. We haven't had a woman leading a federal party that's been able to win more than one seat since 2000. I mean, if that's any indication, unless people join political parties and demand that parties give different leadership offerings, I don't think that the status quo has any push that would make it change. That's really depressing. The federal conservatives could have had Lisa Raitt as their leader. The Ontario conservatives could have had Christine Elliott. The Ontario conservatives probably would not have 75% of Ontarians thinking that the government's going in the wrong direction if Christine Elliott were at the helm. To be completely frank, they could have had that. They deliberately chose not to have that. So this is where I think the it's really important to study political parties. It's important to look at like sexist and racist barriers inside political parties. Um, but until political parties, like forward women as leaders, we're not going to see them in the premier's office and we're not going to see them in the prime minister's office. And this, I think, if you look at something like the Ontario PCs, why they didn't choose Christine Elliott, right? Or if you look at Pauline Marois, why the PQ didn't choose her before the party was in crisis, it's because the field got crowded with, you know, men of comparable credentials and some men with a lot fewer. And, you know, people decide that they prefer men's leadership. I'm not entirely sure. I haven't, like, examined the um, motivations for uh, leadership selections uh, and what was necessarily motivating a lot of those orders. But as an outside observer, if you could have an excellently credentialed woman or a mediocre man and you choose the mediocre man, I look at that and I say, yeah, there might be some double standards. There might be some sexism that's motivating that. Um, and this is, but this is why I say this is why the crisis and decline narrative works because it clears the field of um, the men that would be seeking those positions. And that's, and so the argument is that women are strategic actors. So why would they take these positions if they aren't necessarily that great? Because it's their only opportunity. So they're ambitious. They want to do it. You know, if it's like, so this is Theresa May, like better that I deal with David Cameron's Brexit mess than never be prime minister. Maybe she is thinking differently now, but like that, that would be the calculation going into it for sure. What would you say to the women out there who may or may not be interested in running for office? I would say when women run, they win. And so I would not shy away from running. I would just go in knowing that forearmed is forewarned is forearmed. And so to think about, to think strategically about some of the stuff that's going to come up and to just mitigate it as much as possible right out of the gate, right? And we see women around the world doing this, right? And so there's some really fascinating research, say, out of Israel, where you've got women who are leading um, parties that are more conservative and expect a more traditional kind of like family values kind of thing. And so what they do is they invite the media into their home and they deliberately showcase how their adult sons and their husbands are very supportive of, of them doing politics while they also maintain a very traditional kind of home life, stuff like this, right? Um, and so depending on like where women are and the kind of things that they want to campaign on. You just, I would say, be authentically yourself, and but then also figure out like where you think the gendered stuff is going to come out. For people of color, I would say where you think the racist stuff is going to come out. And then do your best to mitigate that. Some of that is going to be involved in having a team around you that acts as a bit of a buffer. Uh, and I can see the obvious problems with this where it's downloading the emotional labor of having to deal with some of this negative stuff on staff. And that's problematic. And I acknowledge that. Um, but this is something that people are willing to do for leaders to be able to make it so that they can actually do their jobs. So this would be vetting the social media stuff, um, vetting the emails 
thinking about strategically about presentation, stuff like this, you can see, like, if you start to look at women in politics, you can see how they do this, right? Um, part of this also involves, like, knowing that people like me are researching this and will call out the egregious stuff. Like, when a bunch of media talking heads seem to have no problem talking about why Rachel Notley was wearing a blue a blue jacket when she dropped the writ for the election call part of us were like this is the most base level of gender mediation that we see talking about women's clothes like we are better than this the canadian press style guide has told journalists not to do this since 1988 here we are it's 2019 and you are still doing this on twitter and you think you're smart you are not smart stop doing this this is dumb right so like know that there is like people like me where it's my job to like you know use social media to call this stuff out but also know that like we are seeing some things that are getting better and i would just say like know that the sexism is coming know that the racism is coming have a plan to mitigate it and then like do your thing anybody who's been in politics will also will say that there's nastiness that people will get um as somebody who studies politics, and if I do stuff on public opinion, there's nastiness that I get for having the audacity to ask people survey questions, right? Like you just know and you mitigate and like it's just something that you know you have to deal with. But when women run, they win. And so as women run, you will win. If you run, you'll win. Like that's that's when, it, maybe not the first time, but you know, when women run, they win. I am resigning as the leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. I know I have spoken to the party president and asked him to start the process of choosing an interim leader. And it is the right thing to do. There is another generation, and I am passing the torch to that generation. Um, this was my time to leave. So our party and our caucus, I know, are going to have the energy of a leadership race. They're going to be excited about it. They'll um, learn, I think, a lot from that about how to be in opposition and how to stand up for the principles that we believe in. And I really wish them all the best. But now, now I must say, as proud as I am of our record, the fact is the people of Alberta have spoken. Democracy is our absolute highest value and I accept their decision. This has been The Big Question. We've been talking to Melanie Thomas, an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Calgary about women in politics. For more stories about research into this topic at the University of Calgary, visit ucalgary.ca slash explore slash democracy. The Big Question is a co-production of CJSW and the University of Calgary. The Big Question airs monthly on CJSW. To listen to past episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit cjsw.com or explore.ucalgary.ca. I'm your host, Braden Alexander. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.